It's the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. For today's program on hospice for the unhoused, I want to introduce you to a man we're calling Bob. In his late 60s, Bob has not had an easy life. From early on, he's struggled with his use of alcohol. He's called it the demon of alcohol. He had trouble staying employed. He's had trouble keeping a roof over his head. But in June of this year, he told us that he had stopped drinking. He said God removed that demon from him and in its place put a desire for ministry. So he took every opportunity he could to tell people about Jesus. He drove the streets of Southern California in a camper van covered with Jesus's name over and over. People called it the Jesus van. There were flowers on the van and the name of Jesus and above the front license plate on the van's grill, the word holy. At one point, not all that long ago, Bob met some people who offered him steady work, and for a while, he had a place to live other than the Jesus van. It was a small cottage with a porch and a little land. And so what, what I did, I uh, made a garden, and, and the Lord blessed the garden so much with cow manure. I knew where the farms were, and I got cow manure, and I'm... And I just had the most powerful garden you ever saw in your life. My tomatoes were big as, uh, you know, cantaloupes, and everything was so blessed. They were five feet high. You couldn't even see the house because uh, it was like a fence. Of, I had to stake them up because they were so big. And uh, God would send the border people, the uh, Mexican border people, uh, to me, all messed up and dirty and starving. So they come to the porch, and I, without knowing how to speak uh, Spanish, uh, I knew what their need was. So I, yeah, they were so hungry and they were dirty. I'll get you some clothes. And I'm like, why did I say that? I don't have any clothes. I'll just give them whatever clothes I have. And so I went to my, my bedroom, opened the drawer up. It's full of brand new T-shirts with you know, price tags on it, unwrapped. And I'm like, my landlord must have come in and did this because right. she knows I'm poor. She didn't. It was the Lord. And it all, brand new stuff. And I'm like, wow, and I'm wearing socks with holes in them. You know, you, you got to put the hole on top so the hole's not on the bottom. Mm-hmm. I said, come on in and then put these brand new clothes on and sit on the porch and I'll bring you some soup. And so I go right out in that garden. I just grab the stuff and then rinse it. And, and I had this giant kettle. So I filled that full of uh, vegetables. And within 20 minutes, 25, maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes, I had a nice bowl of soup going for them. So I said, you can have as much as you want. So they, they ate to their full, and I ate with them. Because, you know, soup is so good, you can yeah. eat it, eat it, eat it. So, Robert, it sounds like you had a little bit of a ministry going there. You God were helping did. a lot of people it, it was God. to you. And, yes, and God blessed you with that place and with your garden. And you were able oh. to really give back to your community. You were able to help feed people. Jesus, other give, than you. Yeah, give clothes to people. And... I love that. That is a powerful, powerful story. Bob stayed in that cottage for a while, ministering to people with the soup from his garden, telling people about Jesus, trying to be a good person. I don't care how good or bad things get. My God's allowing it because I know God. So what happened is the devil had, had put a curse on my birthmark on my back, in the middle of my back. And my birthmark, it was black as cold, like it burnt. So I scraped, I put, I set up a mirror and I scraped my back to 
to see what in the world, why is my birthmark, that was, you know, just a birthmark, light brown, blacker than coal. And so I scratched it, and it moved. And I scratched it again, and it moved. And I said, Jesus, what is this? He don't tell me nothing. So I go, okay, I'm going to get rid of this. So I, I, I messed with the that demon, and I didn't know it was there because God allowed it to happen. Mm -hmm. And I tried to clean it with hydrogen peroxide, and that's when it took off. I'm lancing this every um, two weeks because it would just grow, and I couldn't lay on it, and it was... So aggravating, I went, oh my God, and it's right at the belt line, you know, where you put your pants up, and I'm like, I can't stand this, I can't stand to drive or sit or lay or anything. I said, Jesus, and I'm not getting any answers. So I'm like, oh God, you know, what does this mean? Why aren't you talking to me anymore? Because you talk to me about everything except for this situation. So I'm like, okay, if you're not done talking to me, I'm going to go ahead and do what I'm going to do, and I'm going to get me a bathtub, so I got a hundred bucks, got a room, motel, went in the bathtub, and I would just take my fingernail and just lance that thing, and blood was just, you know, it was such a bloody mess, but I would lance it down, and then I had to do it every two weeks. Well, eventually, I ran out of blood. That's why when I went to Little Company Mary, they said, we got to give you two blood transfusions, not one, but two, you're, so, you're out of blood. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, where'd all my blood go? And then I remembered. I said, oh, I know. I went down the drain of all them child, the bathtub. While he was being cared for at the little company of Mary Medical Center, the black mark on his back was diagnosed. It was a melanoma, and it was deadly. People talked with him about options, and those conversations included talk about hospice, We'll hear more from Bob in a little while, but I'd like to introduce you to three people who are involved in a novel program that's providing hospice care for unhoused people in Los Angeles County. Dr. Martina Meyer is the medical director of Providence Hospice Los Angeles County. Nicole Snodgrass is director of operations for the hospice, and Marcella Kabalski was the chaplain for the program when we met Bob. I'd like to welcome all three of you to the podcast. It's so good to have you here with us. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. It's good to be here. Who can give us an overview of the program that you're offering to unhoused people? I can take the lead on that. That's Nicole Snodgrass. So we have been very blessed at Providence LA Hospice to have a very robust foundation that has supported patients and families throughout the years um, with both um, caring for patients on hospice, meaning actual unfunded patients. It's providing you know, monetary support for keeping them on service as well as necessities of life, grocery money, um, keeping the lights on in the home, paying a cell phone bill. We've had this lovely um, foundational support really since the inception of of, of LA Hospice. And the need became greater to support uh, patients experiencing homelessness or unhoused patients at the end of their life. We're seeing, especially during COVID, this just grow, growing number of patients and families in LA County that were experiencing homelessness and really identifying a lack of 
support, especially at the end of life. Um, we've been very fortunate to partner with the UniHealth Foundation for several novel programs that we've established and started in LA. And we went back to them with this need to really help support patients who are at the end of their life, who are uh, currently experiencing homelessness, and really looking for a place to care for them that is safe for them, safe for our staff, uh, secure, uh, and really just continues to you know, be more robust in the set of services that would be available to them. Mm-hmm. So placing them in a housing situation where people could care for them as they continue to decline and need more and more support through the end of their life. Right. So the UniHealth Foundation um, honored that request and gave us a really amazing three-year grant uh, to support these patients in their placement on hospice services. And you just started the program this year, right? It started in uh, January. We got our grant officially in, in January of 2022. Oh. But it took us about six to eight months to kind of get it organized and get it off the ground and find find community partners and, and start to share the opportunity that we had to service this community. And as we're recording the conversation today, you've had 12 people that you've been able to help. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, about $120,000 worth of direct patient care and about um, another eighty dollars or $90,000 has been used for education for staff and education for our community and referral partners. Let me turn to your colleagues. Dr. Meyer, does the population of unhoused people present any special medical issues when they're brought into your service? That's a great question. They they certainly do. And it's it's always a bit of a chicken or egg question is are people experiencing homelessness because they are sick or are people sick because they're experiencing homelessness, right? And we don't have one answer for that question. When people who come from unhoused situations or marginal housing start hospice services, they are a special population for us. They have a higher incidence of mental health issues. They've often had negative experiences in the past when interacting with any healthcare system. And so there might be a trust issue. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, their psychosocial circumstances also are very different. There's more commonly a history of drug misuse or dependence. That's just to name a few things. Yeah. For a while, I was uh, a pastoral minister in a small Catholic parish in an urban setting. And one of our major outreach efforts were to unhoused people living, um, trying to live out on the street in the winter. And where I live, um, that can be deadly. And trying to get people out of the cold and into a place of shelter and warmth, at least at night was our main goal. And I noticed um, in doing that work for a couple of years that there was a pretty strong suspicion among people who live on the streets about what's going to happen to them if they were taken to a shelter. They felt victimized often in shelters and felt safer on the street than they did going into some shelters. And 
I wonder if that presents, um, Nicole, you mentioned, you know, finding a place where people could be cared for, but have you encountered that phenomenon at all that people are wary of leaving the street and going into a, uh, a place with a roof over their head? We have, and I think we can all speak to experiences that we've had over the course of our time working for this organization where we've cared for patients where they feel most comfortable. And, you know, this, this program allows for us to pay for them to be placed, but it, it doesn't prohibit us from still continuing to care for them. Um, we've mm. cared for people in motel rooms. We've cared for people in retail spaces behind, you know, behind retail spaces where they live. They own the retail space or rent the realtor, re- retail space, but are living in that location as well. We've cared for people in their cars. Uh, we had one gentleman that we cared for in Santa Monica that um, really needed hospice care, uh, really wanted hospice care, but he didn't want to leave his dog. And so we cared for him um, with his pet in his suburban in Santa Monica for quite some time. And then when, you know, things can, his, his care needs as, continue to escalate, we were able to find uh, a place for him that did also accept his pet. But there are a lot of circumstances, a lot of reasons why um, they, they want to stay in their community. They feel very um close to their social circle and don't want to get moved away from them. And so we try to honor where they want to be um, and continue to do our best to care for them, regardless of the setting. Meeting people where they are and where they want to be. Yeah, exactly. Marcella, your role as a chaplain is near and dear to my heart. And I, I asked Dr. Meyer whether their population of people that you're serving in this program presents special medical issues. Talk to me a little bit about the psychosocial spiritual issues that people bring with them when they enter your service. You know, they come at, I think this was said already, at a really vulnerable place already. So their their vulnerability is um, already, you know, um, established through not having um, a permanent place to live, um, and then finding out uh, about a diagnosis or prognosis um, and being sick, and then often um, just kind of having a change in, in the trajectory of their life and, and thinking about, um, you know, what that's going to be like. Um, I think primarily, and this is kind of already spoken to, is the loss of control is really um hard for them. And, you know, a lot of patients experience that um, in a physical sense, just generally, you know, because their body may be deteriorating and they're having to rely on caregivers. But for unhoused people, um, it really is about their space or the very few items that they have. Mm -hmm. Um, That is what I had noticed is that, you know, it really, it is an existential issue, but it kind of um, translates in, into, they want to keep close to them the very few items that they have. They're very precious to them, whether it can all fit in one bag or their car or whatever. It's that that's what they have. And they've, they've kind of survived by holding on to that. And so they need a space um, that, that can, can accommodate that. And that is about loss of control um, and them feeling particularly vulnerable. Um, You know, another thing that um, 
comes up is, you know, they typically, um, you know, some of them are tied to faith communities. Um, the, you know, the most recent patient that I can think of uh, was, in fact, that faith community um, supported him um, a lot along his journey. Uh, so faith seems to uh, become more central, uh, just as if, if most people who are experiencing a, a life-ending prognosis. But I think for those that are um, unhoused, they're they're very um, authentic hmm. in their faith journey. They they are really um, typically my experience is wanting to grab on to that um, where what their faith tradition is or returning to that. Um, and using that to maybe um, make sense of and cope with what's going on with them. Um, so I, I would say those two things are what I've noticed the most. And so as a chaplain, as a spiritual care provider, we try to um, support that to keep them, help them stay connected. Uh, I can think of one recent patient um, having people come from his faith community was very important to him yeah. and uh, also being able to have his things. I'm going to play for you a bit of tape that we recorded earlier in the summer. Marcella, you were in conversation with the patient that we're calling Bob, and it gives us some insight into some of the stuff that is going on in his head. But also I, I'm really struck by how a very clear sense of truthfulness comes out in this section of the conversation. Let's listen to it and then we can talk about it, all right? The one nurse, his name was, um, I think he was an angel. His name was uh, Michael something. And he said, you're, you're, you're done. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're not gonna make it. And I went, well, <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're stage four. There's really nothing we can do. Even if we were to stop it where it is now, you're in such a shattered condition that there's no healing for you. I said, I do. I would never, never go back to the ministry again. I was, I was full of joy at the same time because I knew I was going to be going home. You, what do you mean you knew you were going to be going home? My home's heaven. It's not here or nowhere. Else. I've never had a home here. I've been homeless really all my life. Was he kind the way he said it to you? He was very stern. He was like, he he, he didn't want to say truthful, it. But yeah, he was truthful when he said it, like he didn't want to have to tell me that, like that, you know. So he felt compassion towards compassion, you. Compassion, right, right. Telling you that. And I was so happy he did uh, because I, I want honesty. I'm an honest person now and I, I love honesty. So he told but, you, but, I imagine he told you that your cancer was incurable. Yeah, right? get him out of here. And he said, he said that it would be better for you to go on to hospice service. Right. right? So they moved right. me out of there, right. put me in a room. And within two days, they said, a, a, a place has opened up for you. Right? Yeah. And I went, wow, that was pretty good. The Lord did that. And I didn't know what a hospice was ever in my life. Never even heard of it. I'm just glad to see people that are not just praying, but actually active duty, living the gospel and not just reading it. And that's what I'm doing and you're all doing. And that's what we're, we're all about. And that's, <laughs> that's what I'm so thankful for. That's it. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I hear that. That's such a blessing. That's the truth. That's the truth. 
Marcel, what's it like to hear his voice again? I mean, obviously, wasn't expecting to have that level of emotion. He, um, I remember very clearly that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, this patient, um, one thing that he had that was a lifeline for him up until really hours before he passed was his cell phone. He had this very old, old flip phone. <laughs> and he used it a lot to reach out to people, left long messages. I have a few saved. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Having edited audio tape of him, I bet they were long messages. They were. They were. And it was it was a part of a verbal processing that he did. And yeah. um, if I could, I would answer. But if not, I'd, I'd maybe wake up to a long, long message of him verbally processing. Um, but... Um, I'm I'm a chaplain, so I'm I'm you know I I kind of am with my emotions, but I honestly am a little bit surprised at myself how um, kind of hit me sideways hearing his voice again. Yeah, I mean, what I what strikes me listening to this audio, and I agree with Marcella that it's it's one that can make us very emotional. I think one thing that strikes me is he illustrates so well that no matter what walk of life you come from, there are losses. Mm. And I think that's really something that we need to remind ourselves of every day with every patient because it is humbling, right? It's not that we come in and we rescue people from the street or from however their living situation, whatever it was, we try to help them so that we can provide the care they deserve and they can pass in a dignified way. But that comes with them losing a lot of things that they valued and that meant a lot to them. So just a great reminder for me listening to this gentleman on the tape to keep our humility and our curiosity yeah. about what life was yeah. like for Bob. Before you we know, one of the in. things I noticed when I was working with this population of people more frequently is how much work it takes to live on the street and the amount of mental energy that goes into uh, taking care of yourself and taking care of others, frankly. I mean, they, were, they often have friends that they're looking after as much as they look after themselves. And I, I realized that someone like Bob, who finds himself suddenly with a roof over his head, I think a lot of outsiders would look at that and say, oh, what a what an incredible blessing that must be. And I think at the same time, it's it's it presented a loss of his ability to take care of others, his ability to take, take care of himself. And it's it's odd for us to look at that as a loss, but... It is. It's absolutely a loss. The free time that, that opened up in his life by not having to worry about meals and shelter must have seemed vast to him. Yeah, we worked very intentionally with the facility uh, care team that these patients were staying at to help educate and help allow for some flexibility and expectations for these patients. Uh, you know, I think most people when they go 
to stay. It's like staying at a, the facilities that we're placing them at are, are very home-like. Um, and so people who have homes or have lived under, you know, have stable housing, it's normal for them. But when we have this population that we've been placing there, we had to work very intentionally with the staff to say, mm. they're going to go outside and have a cigarette. They're going to come and go as they please in a respectful way, but maybe mm-hmm. they're going to pop out and try and go and see some of these family, you know, friends and family to them. Um, when one lady that we were caring for that, I think Dr. Meyer was going to see her and saw her walking down the street, going back towards the facility. She's like, Oh, I think that's my patient. <laughs> you know, so we had to be very intentional in our education and partnership with these facilities who were embracing this, service and this ministry to these patients and uh, really help kind of set expectations with them that is going to be very different than, you know, a normal hospice patient who uh, is used to kind of just being, being where they are. Yeah. Dr. Meyer, is that your experience? Yes. I I love how you explained that, Nicole, because I think that's just what we're trying to do with every patient and and their loved ones, right, is to meet them where they are. And that just means really different things to different people. And so it's it's more geographical maybe for some of our patients who are used to be unhoused. When they move into a facility, which is usually a boarding care, so it's kind of like a small, like Nicole said, kind of like a familial setting, that could be really hard for them to tolerate because of whatever they've lived through a lot of which we're not privy to, right? We only know yeah. a part of what they've been through. And so it can be very triggering. And so we've had patients who, like the one Nicole mentioned, who left for a couple days and came back to the facility after that. And then just for us to be open to that and to welcome her back whenever she was back at the facility and to go see her again, that was sort of our task. And what we what it meant, I think, in her case, to meet her where she was. We can't control people's life that tightly. Yeah. Challenging you to examine your own practice, right? Exactly. And I think what fills me when taking care of these patients is really giving them an experience where we accept them when they come back to us. And we, like Nicole said, we've worked hard and continue to work hard with our facility partners to accept those patients back when they come back to them as well. And that's something that I think has been fractured many times in the past for many people experiencing homelessness. Can we shift gears a little bit and talk about um, how you market a program like this? How do you reach out to a population of people who... um, are, are dealing perhaps with a terminal diagnosis um, where they haven't perhaps been all that intimately connected to healthcare prior to this. How do you offer this program as a way for them to think about how they're going to live the rest of their days? Yeah, we were, um, we started internally first. Um, we started with our, our Providence colleagues. Um, we started with the acute palliative care programs that we work very closely with. We really started, honestly, with our referral sources. That's where we started. We didn't go out 
out to encampments or kind of uh, socialize it that way, we really started internally with what we knew we could control a little bit better. So we weren't quite sure, mm-hmm. like I said, we weren't quite sure if we opened the floodgates and we were going to get, you know, spend the money in six months and not be able to care uh, for patients long term. So we really kind of started small internally with our own Providence teams, with the case management teams who are seeing these patients in the emergency room and, you know, uh, revolving door patients who have lots of ER visits and readmissions for poor health. Um, Providence uh, also has homeless navigators, um, primarily at each hospital. And we started, we, we reached out to them as well and, and provided information and education to them about the opportunity. And then we kind of expanded outside of Providence to, um, homeless support organizations within the community. And then uh, most recently, Martina and I have spent some time with um, our county hospital um, and their, you know, more county-based um, Medi-Cal population who are, um, I think we got kind of a crazy uh, number that the LA County Hospital had cared for like 25,000 homeless people between January and May of 2023. And so we really kind of embraced and wrapped our arms around programs that were caring for these patients um, and uh, looking at different kind of external Providence uh, partners that, that then we could advertise to. And, and shockingly, you know, we really thought that making this available we would run out of money really quickly, but it's been, I think, much slower going than we were anticipating. Um, Many of these patients have, in our experience, have Medi-Cal, and so they could go to a skilled nursing facility um, and Mm. be housed there, but so many of the patients that we've cared for have been on the younger side, I think, and a, a Medi-Cal bed in a skilled nursing facility, while the Medi-Cal benefit would pay for that, you know, we're trying to pair them with um, an environment that is more intentional and um, maybe a little bit more familial, as Martina said, um, get a little bit more uh, attention and care in, in a board and care facility than a skilled nursing facility. So kind of started internally within Providence and then grew outward to then county programs um, and then also partnering with su- certain insurance pay- payers um, that have um, an unhoused benefit and, and looking at how we can partner with them as well. Mm-hmm. This may be a really hard question to answer um, or it may be a hard answer to hear. But if this program were not available, how would these people end their lives? Would they be found dead on the street? Would they find themselves being admitted as an inpatient through an emergency department and dying in the hospital? What are other people's experiences of living with a terminal illness if you're unhoused? I think all of those things are possible. I mean, we definitely hear about people who are, you know, dying on the street, but also, you know, patients who are frequent flyers to the ER and end up passing away in the ICU and 
especially during the height of COVID, they were alone. They were by themselves. And, you know, some of our Providence hospitals have really great um, programs essentially called No One Dies Alone, where volunteers can come in and sit and hold vigil. But during COVID, that was all Mm -hmm. very locked down. And so had lots of, of, of people who were, you know, you know, whether they were experiencing homelessness or not, were dying alone in the hospital. And so being able to kind of one partner with our hospitals and free up some space for other patients who really needed beds while we could care for patients who were dying in another setting of care. Um, but yeah, I think all of both of those are possible dying on the street, dying in the ER, dying in the ICU. And, you know, anytime that they are going to the hospital, they're, you know, for the most part, I think by themselves, they're trying to give a, a different experience or offering an alternative, um, you know, because they don't have to accept what we offer, hospice or, uh, right. or hospice or housing, really. Um, but being able to offer it is um, really the hope and intention of this program. In the tape that we heard earlier, Bob actually says that he had no idea what hospice was when it was offered to him. Um, how do you explain it to someone who may have n- no idea what you're talking about? We get to give you a little presentation. <laughs> uh, I haven't done this in a long time. Uh, hospice really is a set of services to help care for patients at the end of their life. And our goal is to help them have, you know, live the, live their life the best they can for as long as they have. Um, so the services that come with the hospice benefit include medications in order to keep them comfortable, um, any equipment that they need in order to help support them as they continue to deteriorate and their um, physical abilities continue to decline, and then a whole team of people who come in and really care for them as a whole person. Um, nurses, doctors, chaplains, social workers, home health aid, who really all come in and are able to embrace not only the patient, but the family as an entire unit of uh, that we come in and kind of wrap our arms around and embrace. We become their 24 hours a day, seven day a week go-to um, so that they can stay um, where they want to be instead of um, having to go back and forth to the hospital, instead of having to go back and forth to doctor appointments, really everything comes to them. Um, and, and our goal is to really care for people so that they can live their best life for however long the, the trajectory of, of that last chapter is. Yeah. I just want to add that and this has been something I've had to revisit for coming from outpatient back to acute care is um, sometimes that quality of life is a week, you know, and where the demographic here that we, we do have a, a um, high number of unhoused patients that come in and are, you know, through our palliative inpatient palliative care program consults, they are um, diagnosed with terminal illnesses and, them not having a place to go is a very real, um, you know, situation that we face. We have, you know, we have a couple um, comfort care, uh, we call them the comfort care suites here. Um, And we also have some availability on our step down unit where um, they might be able to stay 
um, so they're not in ICU, taking up an ICU bed or an ED bed, so they can have receive that care. Um, it's really interesting. It's it's again been a re, kind of a, a relearning curve for me going back to how we talk about hospice and having a conversation about that um, with a patient that is unhoused and understanding more their background as opposed to somebody who, you know, lives on the peninsula and Rancho's Palos Verdes. You know what I mean? It's very different um, as far as just right. the, um, having the family, the, the family support, um, you know, different educational backgrounds, um, being able to understand um, what that looks like especially when that care is going to be received in the hospital because they're going to be an inpatient on hospice. And primarily a lot of that has to do with symptom management, being able to access the resources that hospice offers as far as pain medication and stuff. So they can have that quality of life for the last week or two of their lives. Dr. Meyer, I, I know that the phenomenon that you see in hospice patients is a rebound that people get better, um, when they get admitted to your service because they are getting probably more uh, dedicated care. And uh, or have you been seeing that with this population of unhoused people? Yes, um, we have definitely seen that. And I think the first time, I mean, there's always people who get better when they're on hospice. I think the first time I became more aware of when that happened in the more remote past was with people who suffered from organ failure, especially heart failure. They're known to do better when they have what's called case management. Mm -hmm. So if they have or case coordination, right, where somebody coordinates their care, calls them at home, whether they're in a hospice or not, and pays close attention to where they are from a heart failure perspective. So it is known that heart failure patients do better with whatever you want to call it, care coordination, case management. And so I saw that phenomenon in hospice as well when we had people with organ failure, specifically heart failure, just having oftentimes the same nurse and the same care team go in and visit that patient or call that patient several times a week made them better. And so we've certainly also seen that in people who were previously unhoused, that once we can help them stabilize sort of their psychosocial circumstances, their housing situation, because being on house does take a huge toll on your body and on your physical and mental health. That sometimes when we housed these patients, they actually have been getting better. So that's definitely a phenomenon that we're seeing. It can cause its unique challenges because now they're placed thanks to being on hospice. And so we always want to make sure that even if they no longer need our services, we want to make sure they don't lose their housing opportunities. So it comes with unique challenges, but it gives me a lot of joy to see that we're actually helping people get better through just being there for them. Has any part of this program surprised any of you? Um, I think what I expected more of would be people who get referred to us and then refuse to be placed in facilities and just seeing, and I think it speaks to the hardship that comes with living in a marginal housing situation. Just seeing that people who got referred to us, I think unanimously chose to be placed. 
And like we heard before, it's not like this always was easy then to stay <laughs> in facilities and to kind of fit into the program or the schedule and the structure. But just seeing the toll that being marginally housed and unhoused takes on people seems to have really informed their willingness to really lean into being housed and really try this out. So I think that's been my biggest surprise is their openness to us, their willingness to trust us and their willingness to try to be housed and see what yeah. what that brings for them. Marcel, any surprises? I think if I were to be very honest, um, I, I agree with what Martina said. You know, I, I think I would have expected more pushback and, and more rejection of the services just because of fear or having to give up that con- that little bit of control that they had or their space. But um, the of the two patients at the, towards the end of my um, time with Trinity Care with, with Providence Hospice was um, that wasn't the case with the last patient with Bob that we discussed a little bit at the beginning. Um, I think for me, what surprised me the most is the level of his receptivity to our care. And um, the, I think it surprised him, the bond that he made with our care team. And um, not, I mean, several of our, our caregivers went above and beyond for him and just provided the most um, just kind and um compassionate care to him. Uh, he had a, a very large uh, tumor on his back, uh, that an external tumor, very large, that was growing very quickly that needed daily care. Um, and he was, you know, a very aware of it. And, um, you know, he was in this, uh, faci- the boarding care he was in, um, the tumor, if it wasn't cared for uh, frequently, it had it was it had a very strong odor, and even went through a period where some of the resi- other residents and even some of the staff there um, had made comments or were struggling. But Bob was very gracious about it, very understanding, and just so receptive to um, our care and to the caregivers there, and concerned about them. And I think that was if anything was very moving for me to see that. Um, and yeah, and he, he really did, uh, live out his ministry till his end of his days was talking about it up and right until probably again, several hours before he passed. So, um, I was moved by that. And I also was really kind of surprised by my own, um, my own experience, how it touched me as a caregiver. Cause we, we, we have to navigate these and try to, um, especially as spiritual care providers, we have to really try to um, be aware of our use of self and how much uh, we open our heart, you know, to let patients in. And I, um, I was very touched by Bob. So. Well, I hope I'm not overstepping a bound by saying it's obvious to me that um, you loved him and that he loved you. That's obvious in the conversation that uh, we just played, you know, two and a half minutes of it. it. The conversation that I have and have listened to now several times is almost an hour long. And speaking with him was challenging. 
um, for all sorts of reasons. And you persisted and it paid off. You really made a connection with him. Nicole, do, is, anything surprise you about the program? I think initially we, the grant that we were given was for LA County only and the lion's share of the requests were coming from Orange County and we were not allowed to use those dollars to care for the patients in the other county, which LA, which uh, Providence Hospice LA County services both counties, is licensed in both counties. The grant money was specifically for LA. They had um, provided another grant to another organization in Orange County. And so we weren't, although these requests were coming in for Providence patients and Providence referrals to care for under this grant, we were not able to utilize um, the, the UniHealth grant dollars specifically for those Orange County patients. And the, there was a, a big surge in the beginning for requests for patients in that area. We were very... Um, fortunate to kind of expand our service of, of this program. Um, actually, with a, a Providence has a, a community benefit, um, and they pick different uh, programs within the organization to then fund. So we actually, about oh, eight months into this grant, got another uh, significant Providence community benefit uh, grant for another $500,000 that we were then able to kind of expand our mm. geography mm. and service patients um, in, in other geographic areas that we were licensed. But it was pretty surprising knowing what the homeless population at the time looked like in LA and uh, the percentage of people experiencing homelessness compared to Orange County, we were expecting the lion's share to come from LA and really the lion's share requests were coming from Orange County, which so that was pretty surprising for all of us. Yeah. 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 Um, is someone writing about this? Are we, is this headed towards a journal or are you sharing the, the wealth of information you're gathering? Uh, Martina and I did do uh, a national presentation at a hospice and palliative care conference. Um, and there have been a couple news articles and things uh, written, uh, lo just local. Um, but no, I don't think that we've we've thought about taking this to a larger scale. Not quite yet. I um, became aware of hospice when I was a teenager and read um, Cicely Saunders, um, her writing. And then in the mid-90s, I was a young journalist and stumbled across a fellow in Montana named Ira Bayok, who had written a book called <laughs> Dying Well. And um, in it, Dr. Bayok uses this phrase um, that, that everyone has a right to die in a clean, dry bed. And that language has embedded itself in my brain. I cannot shake that idea of it being a sort of um, kernel of caring. That's the sort of boiled down version of what it means to be cared for, that you're in a clean, dry bed. And it occurs to me, as I'm preparing to talk to the three of you, that you're serving a population of people who perhaps have not been able to rely on that clean, dry bed anywhere else in their life, very recently at least. And uh, I think from my very privileged perspective, I think you're doing a really wonderful 
thing in providing this service. Um, and I, I know that there's going to be pushback from other folks like, why aren't, why isn't everyone being treated this way? You know, we should be treating all homeless people this way. And the truth is that's right. We should be. Um, but I'm, I'm especially glad that you're offering this service to people who need it at the end of their life. Thank you. Sean. Thank you. I think I'm speaking for the three of us and our coworkers that being able to provide something, right? It, it's it's really a, a drop in the bucket for people who are experiencing homelessness is, is what gets us out of bed in the morning. The fact that we are able through our work to contribute in a way that um, hopefully kind of goes into the fabric a little bit of society and of the way we want to care for each other as human beings, I think is really something that we are actually grateful for. Yeah, I always um, would remind my coworkers on my team, you know, we, that uh, even even um, beyond the, the, the unhoused patients, but just generally how important helping people die well is to the community. Helping people die well is community work, and it really is. It's it's very much community work, and it's not one that's thought about often. A lot of community work is focused on helping people live well, but we, you know, life is part of death, and so helping people die with dignity and die well, and as you said, in a in a clean bed, is is the at the heart of community work. Yeah. Well, um, I want to thank all three of you, um, Dr. Martina Meyer, Nicole Snodgrass, and Marcella Kowalski. Uh, thank you for the work you're doing, and thank you for coming and talking with me about it. I'm grateful. Thanks for having us, Sean. Our pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Martina Meyer is the medical director of Providence Hospice, Los Angeles County. Nicole Snodgrass is Director of Operations there, and Marcella Kowalski was the chaplain for the program serving unhoused people when we met Bob this summer. He died in a clean, dry bed on July 10th. If you want more information on Providence Hospice, Los Angeles County, visit our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. You'll also find an extended edit of Marcella's conversation with Bob, which we recorded back in June. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Health System and its family of organizations. Find us online and subscribe at hearmenowpodcast.org. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical library staff Basha Dolovska-Elliott, Sarah Viscuso, Carrie Grinstead, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening today. Be well.